Welcome to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And what's what's this room? It's got couches, it looks pretty chill. There's a couple of computers in here as well. There's a glass wall and you can't see behind the glass wall. It's like I'm in some kind of, you know, fancy police station. So we call it the burrow. <laughs> it's actually a secret room from the from the front of the office um, and it's our viewing room for our qualitative research. I'm at Sara, Screen Audience Research Australia. It's where content makers can test their work on audiences before it gets released. But Sarah doesn't just get you to fill out a survey after watching a movie. They plug you into their biometric readers to measure how your body physiologically responds to the content in real time. Afters pioneered the use of biometric testing to see how audiences respond to drama. They developed this approach with Sarah, and the first time they did it was on site at the school. A lot of the films and TV series that we are using are in the final stages of editing, so they may have scenes that need fine-tuning, and we can really tap into what's working and what's not working. This is Bella Castle, and today she is our lab technician. For this session today, we're using the biometrics equipment, so it's all about measuring more the implicit physiological reactions. I've never done anything like this before. It seems it seems pretty simple, but can you tell me what you're about to do to me? It sounds like you're going to do something terrible, but you're not. I know it's going to be okay. But, yeah, describe what, what's about to happen. Today we're just going to be listening to an audio stimulus. We'll have you laying on the chair, relaxed, just chilling out, but we'll also have on your hand a galvanic skin response device. Basically that just measures tiny variations in your pulse and your sweat and that will show us your engagement with the stimulus, where it's peaking and where it might be falling a little bit. Today I am the test bunny and I've brought in an audio story to listen to. Bella Castle is going to test my results. For audio, we are just recording tiny variations in my sweat and my pulse. But if I was watching a visual stimulus, like an episode of a TV program, she would also be monitoring my face. She has an eye tracker that records what my eyes are focusing on in any scene and a facial reader to see where I'm laughing or feeling tense. What, what sort of responses do people generally have, if, you know, if they're watching a, an extreme scene or something like that? Yeah, well, I guess it's very much dependent on what they're watching. If they're watching perhaps a gory scene in an episode, the facial recognition might pick up tiny variations of movement in their face that results in disgust or... Or or people just feeling sick or sweaty if it's stressful or something like that. Yeah, so we've got the facial recognition camera that picks up more sort of emotions, whether it be fear, surprise, disgust, which you can then link back to a specific scene. And then alongside that, we're looking at the GSR device to see if engagement is peaking and whether that corresponds to the scenes where they're picking up high emotion. And generally that is the case. Do many filmmakers and producers, do they want this type of record? Like who wants this? So a lot of producers are very interested in this kind of research and it is something that's becoming increasingly used. If you can see where people are implicitly dipping in engagement through the stimulus that they're watching, that's really useful. I'm ready. I'm ready to be hooked up, to be calibrated. Now, the stimulus I've brought in is called Precipice. It's kind of like a radio play that Afters has produced, except it's recorded in binaural audio. And this is distinct from stereo, which you might be used to, that has that simplified left side and right side. Binaural means a special microphone that captures 360-degree sound in a way that mimics a human ear, with all its depth and placement of sound in the surroundings. 
Now, in theory, I should feel more immersed in the story, like I'm standing there in the room with the characters while the action unfolds around me. I've got part one of Precipice to listen to, but there are two more parts coming, and the series is going to form part of the in-flight entertainment on Virgin Airlines in late 2018. Okay, so this is the galvanic skin response device we were talking about earlier. It's nothing too scary. So um, which hand do you use to write with? This one. So you'll actually be using your left hand because it's your non-dominant hand. Okay. If you could take off your ring, that would be great as well. It's getting divorced. Uh, so if you just pop this on your hand, that will just sit there. So your non-dominant hand is used because it is more sort of sensitive for okay. the sweat receptors. Gotcha. So just popping on the sensors now. It's a wristband. On it is a kind of like a, if you have a garage remote control, it looks a bit like that. It's that kind of size. I've got a sensor going around my forefinger, which is basically a piece of Velcro, as you can hear. I look like I'm about to go do it. What is it called? A lie detector test. <laughs> I will fail. And we'll have you laying down with your eyes closed um, with the headphones on. So that's the only really stimulus that you're getting presented to you. Right. So the idea is no distractions so that you can gather, you know, usable and accurate data. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I'm about to go under, everybody. I'll see you on the other side. Wake me up. I'm Fenella Kernabone and you're listening to Lumina, a podcast that explores how tech innovations challenge the way that we shape and share stories. We're going to return to the biometrics lab a little later, but first I want to talk about connection to story. Binaural storytelling is becoming more popular. Even Doctor Who released an episode in 2017 using binaural audio. It's just a small part of the technological race to make stories more immersive, which in theory is all about building a stronger connection to the audience, where the audience, the viewer, the listener, you, stops everything. You're hooked. You're in. That's it. But I'm curious just how much immersion technologies, VR, AR, to name a few, are strengthening engagement. What role do they play when it comes to how we experience narrative? Because when I think about the strongest engagement I've had to story, well, it's reading a book. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. It's the most basic form of storytelling technology. And we humans have a powerful reaction to it. In this episode, I'm seeing if deeper technological immersion guarantees a stronger connection to story. Immersion for me is experience. It's basically communicating through experience. You know, Disneyland is an immersive experience in a lot of ways. It's just using the environment and more senses to communicate. So it's audio, it's touch, it's smell. All those things come together to express your idea. I wanted to speak to someone who was interested in this question of immersion. My name is Chris Panzetta. I'm from S1T2, which stands for Story First, Technology Second. We kind of explore new technologies and how they can tell stories. S1T2 call themselves technologically agnostic. They don't confine themselves to one single form of immersive tech. They play with everything. A lot of the time for efficiencies, you want to focus in on, you know, one technology and go really deep in that. We prefer to look at kind of a story or a problem and say, okay, what's the best technology for that particular story rather than coming to it and saying, let's do a virtual reality thing. It's more like, will this story make sense for us to use spatial storytelling 
virtual reality is really good for spatial storytelling, so let's use that. Looking at a problem without having a predefined solution and saying, okay, which strength of which technology can help us tell that story best. I'm interested in whether immersive technologies like binaural, augmented reality and virtual reality are going to become the new norm in entertainment. But before we go too deep down this road, let's clarify the difference between VR and AR. The differences between AR and VR, for me, are very timeline scale. So the perfect virtual reality is your matrix environment where you are standing in a virtual world where a virtual scene is being created around you and everything is kind of not real. Augmented reality is taking the real world and then layering kind of a virtual layer on top of it, but using the real world as context. So for example, if you're standing at your kitchen and you're looking at kind of the ingredients on your tabletop, an augmented reality experience will kind of overlay and say, this is a tomato and use you know, this many tomatoes to cook your pasta. So it's using the real world as input and feeding through that. At the moment, VR and AR require external hardware, like a headset or a screen. I think AR is very much where we are and will be the next kind of short-term future. I think VR is a long way off, but has super interesting and scary potential. These new immersive technologies, they're exciting, but... I wonder if there's just a little tiny chance that they're a bit gimmicky, you know, like those ridiculous pogo stick boots I harangued my parents to buy me when I was a kid. The excitement could wear off, and quickly. And Chris shares this wariness. I guess a good example of when technology has kind of been used somewhat like a gimmick or turned out to be a gimmick is 3D cinema. So George Lucas, who was the director of Star Wars, what he's less known for is kind of all the innovations he put in film, which was a lot of the sound technology, editing process, and then helping push 3D cinema across the line. But unlike those other previous technologies he kind of pushed forward, there wasn't a great value in 3D cinema. Like just because a character could reach out and touch you didn't really give enough justification for the audience to put some glasses on which is a hassle and makes the whole picture look worse. And if you've got glasses, can give you a headache. So there wasn't a really true value add like there was with great sound or better editing technologies. I think films like Avatar, who really took it and then tried to integrate it in the fabric of the film, got closest to it. But in terms of across an industry, like how does a rom-com embrace 3D cinema and things like that, they didn't find a true value to using that tech until it dies. And that's the best thing about it is the audiences are always the smartest. So unless you're providing real value, the technology, no matter how cool you think it is, is just going to fade off and die. Okay, so what do you find when people get introduced to new technologies? They've got a great story and they want to use a new technology or something like that. What needs to come first? We have a talk at Pause Fest and then someone from the World Bank was in the audience and they were like, I hate virtual reality, but my boss wants us to do a virtual reality film. <laughs> so we were like, okay, well, what's the story about? And then working it back from there. And it turns out the story they wanted to tell was about kind of post-conflict regions and the effect conflict has way after the conflict itself. And then so you look at that and say, okay, what are some of the effects? For example, one of the girls, Lulu, um, lives in a refugee camp she can only spend half the day at school because there's too many kids in the school. There's no flooring. There's 60 kids in the one classroom. So what's virtual reality great for? Feeling present in an immersive situation. So when you put the audience in that situation, okay, you look down and you see the mud on the floor. You feel cramped because there are so many kids. So the spatial storytelling aspect is what we used virtual reality for to communicate that idea of space rather than just saying, well, it's 360 degrees and let's shoot a normal traditional film with that technology. 
So it's just finding out what are the skill sets of these new technologies and then really using that to form a language of the story. What are some of the worst use cases for these things? Yeah, the, like the worst cases is exactly the opposite. Like, let's just use virtual reality because it's the latest thing. And let's take a story that should be not immersive and make it immersive. Like we've done ones which are for like technology clients where they've got kind of a data security problem and they want to tell a story where, hey, the our servers have crashed and now you have to go into the computer and experience the data flying around you. And you're just like, yeah, this could be, there's so many other better ways to do this. And yeah, that's terrible, but... Yeah. yeah, like there's visual things you can do and we use these experiences to learn things ourselves about the tech, but you're not getting a great outcome. To be honest, the worst thing about it is you're going to hurt the medium because particularly when VR first came out, most of it was gimmick stuff. And then everyone who had a bad experience or everyone who wanted to throw up after the experience would never try a headset again. And then so you're actually damaging it by doing those type of things. Um, so for a fledging industry, you know, you want to kind of be defensive about doing the right thing with it. But it's great. I mean, Disneyland doesn't have a lock on this stuff anymore. So we can create phys physical experiences where it's not about wearing headsets. And you see a lot of them. I think Sleep No More is out at the moment, which is kind of a really good example of interactive theatre. Okay, so Sleep No More is a, a theatre show that um, started off in New York City and you walk into a huge warehouse in on Manhattan and basically there's actors all around you and you have to follow the tale. And so, and the whole point of it is, is that it is interactive and you are fully immersed in, in the story, but there's no technology necessarily at all. So there's a big difference between the Disney example that you give and, you know, putting on a headset and, and being part of a story as well. But I think the goal of the technologies like virtual reality and stuff is to become invisible. Like you want to hide the technology the better we are at doing that the better we will be at immersive experiences and that's kind of where everyone's working to in the industry to kind of get there like sleep no more would be the goal of these technologies so it just feels real does immersion equal engagement no not necessarily definitely not you can lose engagement very quickly and it's amazing to me who gets a chance to be in these environments all the time, how quickly you lose engagement. Like the gimmicks, the roller coasters were amazing when I first put those headsets on. Now you totally disengage. And the best thing about it is it's still the human elements that keep you engaged. Like a really interesting conversation going on, the drama of a scene. For all these immersive technologies to become normalised and to feel real, they need to sustain engagement. You know, get those sweat and pulse signals firing in the biometrics lab. To achieve this, immersive stories need a key ingredient. This is what Chris calls presence. So presence is the ultimate goal of any virtual kind of or immersive reality. Essentially, it's truly believing like you were there. And the key here is that it doesn't have to be constantly. You could just even feel present for a second and then you've kind of really got a good engagement um, with the audience. But it's also important to understand with how presence is created. Uh, it's not just... Part of it is immersion, like creating a scene around you, but it's also kind of scripting this idea of alterity, like scripting the idea that this is your role in this place and this is the role you're playing and doing that well. Uh, and it's also the idea of agency or being able to interact with the world. So for example, if I'm in a kitchen and I see a teacup, I better be able to pick that teacup up. Otherwise, the minute I can't, I'm going to lose that kind of connection or my suspension of disbelief. So you create presence through these ideas of immersion, alterity, and agency. But once you've done it, you've kind of at the holy grail of what virtual reality is trying to do. 
Engagement is the name of the game in a world saturated with content. It's what stops you scrolling, not being able to pull away. It's the likes, the shares, the comments. According to Chris, immersion doesn't guarantee engagement. You still need a combination of refined technology and captivating story. When engagement isn't a guarantee, there becomes a market for accurately measuring connection to story, and that is why I'm back at Sarah with Bella. And I'm about to find out if my sweat could communicate how engaged I was listening to Precipice, the binaural audio drama. And I just wanted to say it was pretty hot in the room that day. So, you know. What did you think? What was the stimulus you were listening to like? I'm actually still a bit zoned out by my experience. Sitting in a quiet room, lying on a couch. I'm like, oh, hang on. You want me to talk? (laughs) Um, But mostly significantly, obviously, just with a set of headphones, you know, it's binaural, so the sounds of people's footsteps going across the floorboards, the the noise of someone going from one level on the wooden staircase down to the bottom level, you know, you felt like you were inside their story. It was pretty immersive, I would say. You know, I can see how someone listening, including myself, can become more and more involved with the story like I felt just then. I'd be curious to see if that first few minutes, if there was a small spike mm-hmm. of some kind because um, there was that, that mini kind of conflict that happened between Amira and her therapist. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, you know, yeah, it's a bit like grating a- the sound at that point. Okay, let's look at your results. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're looking at a, basically a green, looks like a waveform almost, um, starting off strong, going down, going up and down, up and down, up and down until the very end. So it looks like I, I didn't I didn't dislike the piece. I was engaged. And I can see I've gone right up at the end. That's when you stopped me. I was like, no, I want to know what happens to a mirror. <laughs> yeah, so, that's the ideal ending really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is quite a typical pattern of engagement. Generally engagement does start off quite strong. Obviously you've just started undertaking the um, recording. What we find is that it might drop off slightly and then slowly build up to a final peak and that is in line with an engaging piece. And that's kind of what people want to, when people want to keep watching more. So they did well. Yeah, so generally, (laughs) yeah. Good to know, good to know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Generally, some people might find the introduction of a story or setting the scene to be a little bit less engaging, but it's needed. If without it, it doesn't make any sense. So how accurate are the results that you get? So generally with this kind of technology, we're not doing just one person. Um, So we're using an aggregate score of at least 20 people. Um, So we're getting multiple responses aggregated together, which gives us quite an accurate measurement. Obviously, we do then take it with a bit of a grain of salt and speak to them and find out what they did think as well. So it's, it's sort of using the qualitative research as well as the biometrics. I was a bit worried before about... You know, if you're in an unfamiliar scenario, you might get a bit sweatier than you normally might be, or you know that that you might you might try and mask your real reactions when you're in a room like this. And that is a valid limitation of the of the software. What we generally find is that people do habituate. You know, they might at first feel, oh, this is definitely a strange environment or it's different, but then things settle. Like you got so relaxed as you did just then, you do tend to forget. With this software, it's using algorithms to try and avoid that. So it's looking at physiological responses, which you can't fake. You can obviously exaggerate facial recognition, but that's only one part of the software. And have filmmakers or audio makers received that data and and drastically or dramatically changed their content as a result of getting the information? Um, Absolutely. It can highlight 
scenes that are dragging on a little bit too long, something that they could cut out, perhaps areas of confusion that are extended upon by talking to the participants, yeah, things like that. So I don't think immersive technologies will become the new norm, particularly because they're not the best for tuning out and kind of just experiencing an entertainment atmosphere without engaging with it too actively. So the same reason why sometimes it's too hard to read a book before you go to bed, immersive kind of realities require a lot from you. So sometimes chilling out in front of the TV is still the best option. So how can storytellers, I suppose, not frighten people off because if, if books and just watching linear stories on film, for example, are in many ways the best way that we're experiencing it, how can we enable all of these types of stories to exist side by side? It's a different type of story. Like, we don't have to be a better film is the idea. We're not trying to be a better book. We still use all these old traditional forms of storytelling and they're not going anywhere. We're trying to add a new type of storytelling and add it for good reason. I think the problem with linear stories is we've reached the capacity to kind of view our world and learn from it when it's coming from a single director's point of view or a single writer's point of view. The best thing about these interactive stories is we're creating situations where we can replay them, play them from different perspectives. So it is more a complex picture, but it allows for more complex and in-depth discussions of culture. So... Does deeper technological immersion guarantee a stronger connection to a story? It certainly guarantees a type of connection, if that is what you want to see, where you want to be. But we can't forget that our desire to be swept up in an immersive story is as old as stories itself. The technology is simply that. It's a tool. But if the story is right for the technology, then the potential for human connection is huge. And that is what we're exploring in our next episode. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, Australia's national screen and broadcast school, dedicated to finding, developing and supporting Australian storytelling talent. Lumina is produced for Afters by Audiocraft, by Selena Shannon and Jess O'Callaghan. Our sound engineer is Ryan Pemberton and our executive producer is Kate Montague. I'm Fenella Kernerbone. And if you'd like to hear more of these episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters. 